Fakalofalahiatu. Kiorana. Huanin. Malo elele. Dobredoidovte. Kiora. Welcome to Waho Putong, our Heritage Talks 2023, a series of expert talks that provide valuable insight into our personal and shared heritage. In today's talk, music historian Gareth Shute explores how alcohol often slipped into music venues, even though it was illegal to play music in a public bar in New Zealand for nearly a hundred years. So dress up in your New Zealand band t-shirt, grab your favourite album, sit down and enjoy this lively presentation. Today's talk, Music in the New Zealand Drinking Laws. This image, just to give a sense. That first image is from the sort of 50s, 60s when there was a real fight about uh, drinking laws. And that's the Gourmet, which is a restaurant where they often had quite illicit drinking. You can see wine on the tables and stuff. But it was all very hidden and still illegal at that point. And the cabaret in the background is actually written about the drinking laws as a way to challenge them. So they took this cabaret around the country, a singing show about how dumb the drinking laws were and how backward we were. So I thought it was just a good image to start. But in actual fact, to know about the drinking laws, you have to dig way back into New Zealand history, into the 1800s. And to give a sense of what the music was like at this time, I'll see if I can play the song, but we'll see. This is a song called Shanty. It's in a first rate business section where bubble shrugs cross and beat. It stands in a quiet and quiet direction to rest the weary travelers. Kerosene lamps there shine and brightly, cards and loaves of billiard walk. Men and mates are dancing lightly to the music inside those. Well, it's rows of bottles standing upright, labelled with bright blue and gold. There's a golden piece of icing from the cellar's clear dark hole. That gives a little picture, Shanty by the way. It was actually based on an Australian folk song and it came here, but it describes the kind of shanties of the time where it was all very loosey-goosey. You go along and have drinks, be dancing, a little bit of music just from whoever turned up. But as time went on, the law started to catch up with drinking. And in 1842, there was the first attempts to sort of govern alcohol sales by having licenses and trading hours and those sort of restrictions. In 1847, they banned the sale of um, banned of sale of alcohol to Maori. Maori weren't that keen on it anyway. They called it waipero, which is like stinking water. But that would become a problem later on because people would just illicitly sell terrible alcohol to Maori. And it was just totally out of control. Uh, so that's sort of another sideline. But in 1874, they started to get even more strict with these licenses. You know, they stopped having women and young girls working in them unless they actually were the owners or family of the owners. When it came to music, you can see these are quite hard to read, but just to give you a sense of the sort of arguments that went on, uh, this law in 1866, which is discussed on the far left, puts in a special license. So if you have a billiard room or wrestling, you have to pay a pound to get a license. But if you have music, it was actually 10 pounds. So it was already kind of a pricey thing to have music in your bar. 
then and it was enforced too so you can see the top article in the middle someone's accused there of having music in their uh, bar their public bar without having a license and they were let off because they were just got into the industry and then below by 1868 there was kind of more fights about where the licenses should be given to places that have music the idea was that drinking is bad Adults can do it in a very restricted thing, but music's just going to encourage them to drink more. And so is billiards and having dancing girls and stuff. So they really started to clamp down. So this letter seems uh, crazy. Now, we have witnessed the deepest regret, the many evidence of vice which have emanated from those singing and dancing assemblies, which cannot fail if they're allowed to be continued to have the most pernicious effect upon the moral character of many of the inhabitants of our city. So it was pretty highfalutin language from the sort of temperance movement. And then by 1884, you see someone, this is an example, the law actually came in 1881, the Licensing Act really clamped down. In my article on audio culture, I kind of said it was the end of um, having music and entertainment in bars. It wasn't quite that clear. You could still get a license, but it just became extremely hard. And so you see this person in the article on the right, He's, he's got a bar and what he's decided to do is have a dance in a separate room of his hotel, but they've still accused him of breaking the licensing laws because he's had this dance in the room next to where he has the bar. And it, so he was actually charged. So, but gradually as time went on, it only took a decade or two before you really just didn't have music or any entertainment in bars. They got more and more diabolical. The other thing we need to mention from this era, though, that relates to the music scene later, is that often bars were in hotels. You know, the whole idea of the public bar is it's public because it's part of a hotel, but it's open to the public. So at the top, we see the King's Arms that started as a hotel before much, much later becoming a music venue. And then the bottom one, I uh, can't remember. Oh, the Windsor, that's the Windsor and Parnell. So right back at the beginning, they were hotels and the reason was for that was that they decided they needed more lodgings you know these kind of shanty towns around the place or even cities like Auckland there were all this in, influx of people from Europe and not enough places to stay so they needed more hotels so basically they made a law that if you have a public bar serving alcohol you need to have at least six six rooms of accommodation so that's another weird law that a hundred years later would affect where music was played so then, of course, we go into the 1900s and the temperance moving, movement really gets going. They had their own songs, their own bands. One of their songs was, The temperance cause will win the day. Hurrah, hurrah. The curse of drinking be swept away. Hurrah, hurrah. Then will our land and truth be free. No longer slaves to drink will be. A happy temperance nation we, when victory is ours. And victory they kind of did start to have in 1910, the same year this photo was taken. The drinking age was raised from 18 to 21. In 1917, during the war, to keep the soldiers honest, the, the young men of the country honest, they introduced the temporary measure of six o'clock closing. So it was meant to be temporary, but lasted half a century. Uh, that all bars had to close by six o'clock. And then in 1919, they got as far as trying to ban alcohol sales altogether. So we almost got to that point. So that's what these kind of posters come from. 
just looking at America and the sort of gang warfare that had occurred there due to the banning alcohol. And so there was a real battle and the votes came in and it looked like Temperance was going to win, but then the votes came from overseas, our soldiers overseas, and it swayed and alcohol sales remained legal till six o'clock. So then what happened? People still wanted to drink with their music and even in public sort of dance halls and so forth that were popular at the time. So you kind of got this sort of gray area really where, especially in the swinging 20s when it was all about champagne and doing the Charleston or whatever, you'd have these places like this was the Dixieland. It started in Central City, but it moved out to Point Sheva. It was right on the coast there. And what they did was they'd often rent out a glass. So you'd go, you'd pay your tuppence or whatever, they'd give you a glass and then you'd pour your own alcohol into it. And they argued, well, it's kind of a public sort of party then, like it's unrelated to the bar. We're doing our thing, they're doing their thing, they're just having a party in our space. But the police sent along a couple of constables undercover and they caught them at it having a good time. And it actually sounds like the constables had quite a good time in their description to the judge. But it led to this article in The Truth just sort of blowing it up and saying how terrible it was and making them all seem like crazy uh, orgy of jazz and fizz for charity's sake. <laughs> so, so alcohol music then moved to private parties, really. That was sort of the main place where you'd have music and drinking together. I did want to note that as I went through this, these photos, just to give you some background to my research, I was always careful to make sure that the bottles that I said were alcohol really were alcohol. So that took a little bit of squinting, this photo from the Reichenberg. It took me a little while to match it up with these uh, old Draft Dominion Bitter labels. They did slightly change over time as well, so it could be quite tricky. Yeah, so you'd have these private parties and weddings and so forth. And that just continued on into the 50s and 60s. One of my friend's dads used to play at these parties. And he just said, uh, his band was called The Tornadoes. And he said, virtually every suburb had a youth club. There's nothing else for teenagers to do. We had a few big concerts in Wellington and Lower Hutt Town Halls and so on and so forth. So you get an idea that there was a whole sort of teen scene developing that was sort of away from this a bit. It was kind of ironic, though, because at the same time, you would, would have, especially during the Second World War, for example, you had the visiting soldiers, they had their own bars and stuff where they could have bands and alcohol. And so you had ones like the Al Ray in Hillsborough here was a popular one, where they had a house band playing Glenn Miller's hits and they served T-bone steak and they had beer for sale. So it was a real uh, proper fun bar, even while the rest of the country couldn't do that sort of thing. And down in Christchurch, you had the Bird Dog Club, which was where Ray Columbus and Max Merritt would go and play, but then also check out the music and get the chance to sort of drink and party with these uh, US servicemen. And that was right through to the sort of 50s and so on. So the, the troops remained stationed here for quite a while. Yeah, so funnily enough, there's a Peter Cape song called Charlie's Bash, which is, takes that first song I played, uh, Shanty by the Way, and turns it into a song about private parties and drinking and music. So it's kind of updating it to the modern scene of that same thing. The other places were these kind of 
teen clubs that I mentioned, like this is the Oriental Ballroom, which is up on Simon Street. And really, yeah, there is no alcohol there. It really is a lot of teens dancing and listening to music. Sometimes the bands would kind of sneak it in and so forth. You know, Shira Lee downtown was conveniently placed right across from a off-license. And so there's a few band anecdotes about taking alcohol over there. But there was a true teen scene that had nothing to do with it. And then you had the coffee lounges, which were similarly a kind of teen scene. And, you know, you can see you just play, pay your cover. You can go on and get um, toasted sandwiches and so forth cups of tea, cigarettes, that was kind of the how they made their money. Uh, this is a New Year's Eve even, and that's how they're partying with a cup of coffee and a cigarette and having a Joe Ricketts band play. <laughs> so I got a quote, there's uh, Dave Williamson who uh, contributed a oral history to Auckland Libraries as well, was a musician in some of these coffee lounges, and he said, there weren't too many patrons who were what I would class as always drunk. Maybe happy and very loud, but not too over the top. I know about 15% or maybe 20% used to hide a small bottle of something to mix with other beverages like Coke or lemonade. I do, however, remember while playing at the Picasso Coffee Lounge, local and overseas sailors used to arrive absolutely plastered and I saw many fights there. So many, in fact, that I moved my drum kit closer to the kitchen to be able to take cover if a rumble started. After one violent fight on the street, one drunken solo was kicked back down the stairs from the entrance. So that's what they did with the drunken solo sailor. Ugh, ruined that joke. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you get that kind of idea. You know, people were sort of subtly drinking there. But then you did get these kind of more under-the-radar clubs. This was Polynesian Club, which was up on K Road. It had been a cabaret for quite a while and even uh, showed films in the sort of 20s and 30s. But then uh, it was taken over by a chap called Lou Matai, a Tahitian immigrant, and he started a bar called the Polynesian Club. But he didn't advertise. You'll never find an ad in the paper. I think I found one from 1946 and then it just went silent because he obviously kind of had this under-the-radar club the jazz musicians in particular would play their regular sets in big bands around town and then they'd go to this place and they'd jam till the early hours in the morning and alcohol was just on the tables. Like all the photos from the Reichenberg, they're just <laughs> tables are covered with beer bottles. Yeah, you can see, once again, I've tried to double check that they are, really are alcohol bottles. So there's an old uh, label called Red Band in one of the photos and a Lion bottle in one of the others. So you could get away with that sort of thing. And down in Wellington, the Majestic Cabaret, they did a thing that a lot of cabarets also did, which was they would rent themselves out for private parties. So if they're having a wedding, they could really seriously claim, oh, we really are a private party in this instance. So we can have music and we can have alcohol uh, more available. Majestic Cabaret, though, also seemed to have very long curtains next to all the tables with little shelves that people could tuck their alcohol on. And like they left the furnaces, like the old fireplaces empty. So they were quite handy to tuck your alcohol in if the police ever did show up. And then there was just the sort of class factor, I guess, like colony in Auckland. This is where the adults went when the kids were at their teen rock and roll clubs. Very late night, more lounge sort of floor show, entertainment, and that's Ricky May playing there. 
And I think the police just were willing to turn a blind eye at some of these places. They'd phone ahead if they were coming and things like that. So there was sort of a um, double standard going on. However, the other cunning way of getting around it was um, just putting your bar out of town. So the other thing you noticed, if you look at where all the venues were in the sort of 50s and 60s, was there's heaps out west. It's like, why are all the venues miles away from anywhere? Like the worst case being like, the ranch house, which was like down the end of Beachhaven, you had to catch a ferry there. And people would just come off the ferry with their crates of beer, you know. <laughs> there's no way the police were going to go all that way. And also, um, there's actually a biography by one of the kids of the people who ran the um, town and country roadhouse out west. And the son even says they had a phone line, basically. If they busted one club, they'd just ring all the others, and all the others would hide their alcohol. So by the time the police got to the next one, it was empty, you know. Um, he says, you know, there would be a panic. 10 or 11 years old, I was sent upstairs out through the window and onto the roof to lower the alcoholic liquor prohibited sign onto its chain so it hung above the main entrance. The guests were warned to drink up or hide their bottles. <laughs> so that's kind of how it rolled. So the ones we've sh that are shown in this photo, the top right one and the bottom left one are the, uh, the Pine Song out west, which was another one where they could sort of have private events as well as being a sort of public bar. So they sort of played both roles. And you can see the musicians in the background. And you can see, if you look in the top right photo, you can see what can be confusing. There's a lemon and pyrua bottle there. Same brown kind of bottle as the alcohol bottle. So you do have to be a bit careful uh, when you're pointing out what's what. Uh, bottom right, we have the pines, similarly named, which was quite far out in Wellington. So you had to drive right up around the cliff and you got to this place called The Pines. And you can see he's holding a can of red label leopard beer there. It was a like very cool sort of popular spot. Shown in the photo is uh, the drummer, Bruno Lawrence, of course. He started there, his wild drinking days. And uh, in the middle is pianist Garth Young who said, Pat McCashin, the owner, would go around the tables with a beer glass and say, put something in it for Garth. So it'd be whiskey, gin, vodka, all together, you name it, and I'd have to drink it. There was a fair bit of drinking involved. <laughs> so they once again could just get away with being out of town. I mean, I say that the cabarets in town were left alone, but there's a the pianist Billy Farnell who played around town. He does have a good anecdote. I think I've told it before, but I'll just quickly read his quote talking about when he was working at El Morocco in 1955. He said, we had a dumb waiter. It brought the food up and down into the restaurant. And Leon, the owner, said to me, oh, God, take this. And it was a box of Dewar's whiskey, a wooden box with all the drink in it, you know. I thought, what am I going to do with this? So I stuck it in the dumb waiter and jammed it between the two floors. The police were so angry that they got an axe. They axed the walls, and Leon went to jail for three months for selling it. <laughs> they also tried to take Billy uh, to court as well. They said he sold alcohol out of his piano seat, that he had bottles in there and he'd sell them. So he actually brought his piano stool to trial and showed that it had no box, <laughs> had no container for sheet music, so nowhere to hide alcohol. So, I mean, the battle raged, really. It was people like that first photo I showed of... Otto Gruen and Jim Jennings, who ran the High Diddle Griddle and the Gourmet, they really challenge it as a restaurant thing. It's like we're sitting down to a classy meal. 
why can't people drink? We can trust them. We, the music will be light sort of entertainment. It'll be very grown up. We have to join the real world. So it took a while, but they did slowly start to change the laws. They did change the restaurant laws actually a bit earlier in the 60s, but um, originally it was very limited, you know. I mean, talking about before they changed the laws, uh, Perrin Rowland in her book, Dining Out, describes how the gourmet used to be. They, she said, or he said, uh, the gourmet used to set each table with glasses already filled with ice. If the police came in, they were water glasses. If not, customers simply filled them with whatever they brought with them. In Christchurch, diners at the Milando would find their wine bottles corked with candles if the owner, Hans Levi, got wind the restaurant was about to get raided. Customers also dropped off their supplies for the evening when they made their reservations. Orsini's in Wellington kept private cellars for regulars. Customers would walk in with their bottles and they'd be labelled and kept in the back of the kitchen to be served with their meals. So yeah, the gourmet was repeatedly fined, <laughs> of course. And then in 1961, the law was changed um, to allow wine to be sold with dinner till 10pm. And barmaids were allowed back into bars. So it was slowly changing. But the amount of licences, gourmet in that first year received one of 10 licences to sell alcohol in a restaurant. Even by 1964, there are about 44 across the entire country, so it's very limited. They actually made it harder in 1965, where they made this big list of uh, requirements if you were going to have an alcohol license, like how many coat hooks you had to have, how many square feet per customer, and so forth. So it was very bad. And in the meantime, bars had just got awful. Like the six o'clock swell, like it's no under underestimation to just say it was horrible because you know there were court cases about bar owners just going around at the end of the night and getting all the leftover beer and just pouring it back in the keg and then repumping it and fizzing it back up to sell the next night and stuff there was no music they just got rid of seats like there was no point in having stools people would just go in and stand there and drink and that was it they started having straw on the floors so if people threw up then they could just sweep that away. It was just disgusting. <laughs> a disgusting hour between work's end and uh, going home to pass out on the couch. All in the name of making men go home to their families and being lovely uh, fathers. So that, that's kind of how it backfired. So in 1967, they did finally start easing up and they went back to 10 o'clock closing. In 69, they moved the drinking age to 20. So down one year, but still at 20. It was still difficult to get a license. So let's think about, these are all gig ads from the early 70s. What do you note about them all? Well, going back to what I said very, very earlier, they're all, play, they're all hotels. So they're all, a lot of those venues were just hotels because hotels had always been the places that could be pubs. And so they naturally became the venues. And these were quite long-lasting. I mean, that Crocodiles one at the Windsor Park Hotel. I mean, it's a very uncool part of town. I grew up there, Mangu Bay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it had a license, so it had the coolest bands right up to the 80s. And it was just very hard to get a license. And so, yeah, you'd have music in hotels of varying standards. And then the alcohol companies also were like, oh, this is great. We have free reign. We have all the bars and no one else can open a bar because it's so hard to get a license. So all the different companies were down the bottom. We've got DB running 
bars with bands. Leopard in the middle was still going, Leopard Lager. So they had their certain clubs and they would pay a bit out of their promotional budget to advertise those gigs and pay the bands and so forth. But the big one was New Zealand Breweries, which was the company that sort of ate up Lion and a whole bunch of others or amalgamated. And they had a huge budget, like their entertainment's manager, Richard Holden, had a budget of $2 million a year to run bands around their pubs. And so that's $22 million in today's money. So right up until just up until 77, basically, he ran all these bands. Well, even on this, these ads, you can see some of the bands that were just created as bar bands. Distillery are named that because they were just made by uh, New Zealand Breweries Limited. And then we have other ones here, like the bottom right. They, they were actually brought in from Wales. They're a covers band from Wales that they renamed Pilsner and sent out on the traps. The one top left, I think, was Beam, named after Jim Beam when they started importing Jim Beam. But Harry Lyons from Hello Sailor is playing guitar in that photo. So it was this great job for musicians to get trained in. So you can actually make a living playing around these bars. It was quite an amazing scene. Yeah, it's just kind of showed how the places that already had history, places like the Peter Pan Cabaret at the top of Queen Street that had previously been the Metropoles and had run since 1951. You know, that was the kind of place they were going to give a bar license to. What happened after that, though, was that people could move in and take over those spaces and make them modern rock places. So when Peter Pan started going badly, it became Charlie's Place, a new owner turned it into Main Street and made it into the main sort of venue in town, playing cool new acts and being able to sell alcohol. Meanwhile, the, yeah, the sort of... Um, Newer people coming into the industry really struggled. One prime example being the Bluestone Room uh, or Bluestone Store, which was uh, built in the 1800s as a storehouse, but became uh, a series of clubs in the 60s, including the Top 20, where the band would just play the Top 20. And then in the 70s, it was taken over by the singer Tommy Adderley and a partner, and they increasingly wanted to have alcohol. And so what they did was they had downstairs, which was Granny's, and then they started Grandpa's upstairs, which was a private club, and you had to have a card, and then you could come in and drink alcohol. So that's the car, the member's card you'd need. It totally failed. Tommy Adelie was like taken to the ringer by the police that he had to sell his car, his house, was bankrupted. And so that was the end of that little scheme. Similarly, um, Phil Warren, the famous 60s promoter, started a club called The Crypt where you'd buy tickets at the door and then you could exchange them for alcohol inside rather than buying it to try and get around the laws. So he was fined massively as well. But his, these sort of struggles did slowly change things. In 1977, they opened up the crab cabaret closing time so some could go to like 3 a.m., and Phil Warren was so adamant about it and it got him so into politics that actually ended up being deputy mayor in 1988. <laughs> so that's how strongly he felt about it. That's him in the bottom left in that photo there. That's him partying at uh, Peter Pan Cabaret in the 60s, which is was an alcohol-free venue, but there seems to be a lot of bottles on the table. 
So uh, she knew the right people. But the kind of clash of um, old and new did mean there were other tensions as well, like where were the punk bands going to play? You know, no self-respecting hotel pub wanting to have them. And so they did just start taking up either non-licensed spaces like Zwine's or Charlie's, Charlie Gray's Island of Real, or they just started finding the quiet spots at bars. Like this photo was taken at the Windsor Park, the top right photo, and that shows some punk girls having a fight and throwing beer at each other on the dance floor. So it didn't always go well, but that's how they sort of got in. They just got in those quiet spaces and sort of forced their way into the alcohol scene rather than actually being able to start their own bars because it was still so difficult into the 80s. The other thing that happened, I think, a lot in the 70s was they did start making these big kind of booze barns as well, like the Glenfield Tavern, and there was another one in Wyra Park, uh, whose name escapes me. But basically, they didn't really have very good ways of testing drunk driving. So in 1969, they, they made the alcohol limit for driving 100 mils per 100 litres of blood. So you could basically still drink a six-pack and be under the limit if you were an adult male. So it was quite a high standard, but then there was no real way to test on the roadside. So they'd have to be so convinced you were the drunk that they'd take you back and do a blood test back at the station. So one promoter said in one of the audio culture articles. In those days, you could go to the pub, as we did, for two hours every night and drive home happily. Obviously, that encouraged the big barns in the big pubs, like the Thunderbird Valley Inn in Glenfield, which held around 1,800 people. So you jam them in there, bands like Tommy Adderley and the Chicks, then we'd have a bloody good night. <laughs> so yeah, people would just sort of drive carefully, drive with one eye closed. And so it was only really in... 84 when they did roadside testing that that changed and suddenly you could breathalyze people and so that did mean that bars kind of congregated more in the central city there was none of that sort of driving around town to get to bars you know and other unlicensed spaces did kind of come up in this era like in wellington there was ziggy's and so the owner desner sort of said ziggy's was not licensed but we had a locker system which the police were well aware of Malcolm George and I would physically carry all the crates of drink mixes up a huge flight of stairs and our lunch bakes from our real jobs. And then the patrons would bring along their alcohol and then the, uh, leave it in their locker. And so it'd be theirs, nothing to do with the bar. You know, there'd be these kind of ways to get around it. But yeah, it, it is surprising that there was kind of uh, an all ages scene still because I guess the drinking age was 20, that was one thing. And so people, really, if they wanted to see bands and they were teenagers, there was no way. So you'd have these big events, like that's top photos, the Screaming Mimi's playing at a netball hall on the North Shore. So you had a lot more sort of all ages things going on at that time. And uh, Russell Crowe, the actor, when he, he used to uh, DJ and help run nights at King Creoles, which was down under the Civic. It was this crazy bar where they had half of a car was like nailed to the top of the ceiling and that's where the DJ booth was. So he got to start there. But then he actually did start his own club up on Simon Street, which was an all ages club specifically for that reason. And they'd have Battle of the Bands and so forth. The other thing 
I thought I'd throw back to is the driver's licenses of those days, which were like weird, just flappy pieces of paper that were quite easy to adjust. Well, not easy, but if you had a bit of technique, you could adjust in various ways. So you could write with pencil on it so that a bouncer wouldn't be able to see your age. Or some people uh, I remember at school would cut out just the surface of two numbers and swap them. So they take one from the serial number and swap it with their age so that they could get into bars. So it was very desperate kind of times to see bands. And then when they went right through the 90s, that bottom um, right photo is of what's called the straight edge scene, which is a American kind of movement. And the reason why I know that is because one of the uh, gig members has a huge X on their hand, which became a, a symbol of the straight edge scene, which is basically a punk scene that was all about not drinking alcohol or taking drugs and just exercising and moshing and uh, using your physical energy that way. And so the mark of getting into a straight edge gig was this big X and people started getting it as tattoos and so forth. And so New Zealand had a big straight edge scene that developed around Hamilton and Auckland, especially in Hamilton, weirdly. And so there were heaps of all ages clubs in Hamilton or halls they'd hire to play this full-on punk music. So today I guess we're sort of in this weird uh, limbo state in a way where in the 1990s at the end they put the drinking age of course down to 18 so suddenly there was two more years of people who could go to bars so there's not wasn't quite the pressure to have all ages gigs as there once was before that. So I feel like there's not like a groundswell of teenagers to mean all ages gigs sort of profitable. So it is quite a hard space. It's kind of unfortunate for the 15, 16, 17 year olds. When there were more underages because the drinking age was higher, like in the late 80s, um, you'd have things like the power station had a special license where they could have all ages downstairs and licensed upstairs. And the council was quite open to that because they wanted teenagers to be able to go out and see bands. And you'd have a lot more sort of record in stores or record stores made big enough to have all ages gigs. So they do continue that photo uh, bottom left is of the Minchicks playing at the ground Grayland Hall, which is right next to the Grayland Library. And more recently, I think people have started to think about how that can change. There's been different movements where they've tried to push it. One example being in the early 2000s when the Czechs were a very popular band in um, Devonport. They got in touch with Boyd Thwaites, who was a musician himself. He used to play in a 90s band called The Lils, and then he became the manager of the Masonic over in Devonport. And so the Czechs were so popular with their teenage audience, they said, can we play one show in the afternoon where we play all ages and one show in the evening, which would be a licensed one. And that went on for quite a few years and he managed to get a license to just do the upstairs bar unlicensed. Another example was Puppies in Wellington, which was run by the promoter Ian Jorgensen, who did the Low Hum tours. And he had a whole space at the front. When he made the bar, he left a room at the front so before the band would play later in the evening at the licensed gig, this front room, they'd have a smaller gig just for underages. So it's still kind of possible. And obviously festivals and other spaces are all ages and have to sort of find that balance between the two. But uh, there are signs that it's gone too far. I think that 80 
seven law when you started having all night drinking and bars being open all night really caused trouble. I, I got a quote from Simon Gregg, who used to run the box, and he kind of he actually already had a license that meant he could stay open all night, but he chose not to. And then when the law changed, he found felt that to compete he had to open all night. But what he found was like people don't if they keep drinking past midnight, then they're trouble. And if they don't keep drinking after midnight, it's because they're on other drugs and they won't spend any more money all night. All they do is take up space in your nightclub. And so having a club sort of close at 1 or 2 a.m. made a lot more sense to him than having one that closed at 3 or 4 a.m. or stayed open all night. And I think the recent troubles have kind of reflected that. And in 2013, uh, they brought in a law that bars would have to close between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. to sort of wind back the um, open slather. So yeah, that's mainly what I want to say. Thanks for listening to today's Heritage Talk. You can book to attend one of our upcoming talks by heading to our website at www.aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and searching for events. Some of our previous talks can be found on our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud and you can discover even more about our heritage and research collections by clicking on the Kura shortcut and our heritage menu on our homepage. Until next time, mate wa.